Yeah, and we got a good group. All right, uh, I believe we're at the bottom of 328 as well. So I'll just uh, jump in. Uh, thank all of you for joining us on this lovely Tuesday as we continue reading through uh, chapter four, section four of Anti-Oedipus, uh, the section on the first positive task of schizoanalysis. Um, and uh, we have been already diving through a bunch of pages and it is going to be a slow go because a lot of this stuff is, as you've been hearing us ramble about, not the easiest to take in. And uh, none of us here are already Deleuzian scholars and there's a lot of questions we have. So hopefully you don't mind uh, too much discussion, but thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'm going to first open up to, uh, did anyone have any epiphanies over the, the earlier section, the earlier part of this section last night that... Uh, they want to go over today or do should i just dive right into the text in regards to uh coding and codification and the second synthesis or really anything uh regarding because it we went over so many things uh already i'm gonna guess that's a no fair enough uh then i'll go ahead and uh i'll begin reading bottom of 328 uh <sighs> It would seem that the genetic code points to a genie decoding. One need only grasp the decoding and deterritorialization functions in their own positivity, inasmuch as they imply a particular chain state that is metastable and distinct both from any axiomatic and from any code. The molecular chain is the form in which the genie unconscious... Is it genie? Is it supposed to be genic? Genic. God damn, this PDF. Uh, a genic decoding. Uh, why genie? Uh, I kind of like the visual, but that doesn't work. The molecular chain is the form in which the genic unconscious, always remaining subject, reproduces itself. And as we have seen, that is the primary inspiration of psychoanalysis. It does not add a code to all those that are already known. The signifying chain of the unconscious, Newman, is not used to discover or decipher codes of desire but to cause absolutely decoded flows of desire, libido, to circulate, and to discover in desire that which scrambles all the codes and undoes all the territorialities. It is true that Oedipus will restore psychoanalysis to the state of a simple code, with the familial territoriality and the signifier of castration. Worse yet, it will happen that psychoanalysis itself wants to act as an axiomatic, which is the famous turning point where it no longer even relates to the familial scene, but solely to the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth. And to the psychoanalytic operation that supposedly answers for its own success. The couch is an axiomatized earth, the axiomatic of the cure as a successful castration. But by recording or axiomatizing the flows of desire in this way, Psychoanalysis makes a molar use of the signifying chain that results in a misappreciation of all the syntheses of the unconscious. Uh, we probably should just take a moment just to go over quickly uh, the last few paragraphs they've been talking about. The symbolic chain, the uh, signifying chain, the molecular chain, they've been having this discussion basically trying to pull in my reading uh, sort of Lacanian and Freudian psychoanalytics and trying to talk about where this chain and how it functions. Is that fair to everyone? Does, is my mic working? Probably. Yeah. Okay. The consensus is probably. 
You know, I'll take probably. Um, but it's, 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 I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time in the review at this point, for sure, having this discussion about what this literally means. But, uh, Mike, I, we'll start with this. What is this paragraph about? Like, this is that, I think, Alyosha, is this what you've been talking about? This, this same thing where it's like, cool, I'm completely missing the thread. My fingers are not on the pulse of this. I feel like that throughout this entire one. For fuck's sake, I was saying genie, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you ain't never going to have a code like me. I, uh, I really, I, I actually think this section is uh, more akin to the previous section, so it's not that bad to me. It's the next few, like uh, starting on three twenty nine onwards, where I think we start getting into things like zero intensity and stuff like that. That is uh, going to require a lot more. But in this one, I mean, having read through the end of the section, the this thing of the genic unconscious always remaining subject, they've talked about that a bunch before, but. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, they they talk about uh, is it the partial objects, the body without organs, and then the 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 part produced on the side that corresponding to connective, disjunctive, and conjunctive, and the part produced on the side is like the that's the subject in a sense, the thing that comes to think of itself as the subject. So I just th- that move <laughs> as far as that move works, I think I get that the idea of the genic unconscious is the kind of the one that is. If anyone's in the driver's seat, if you want to call it that way, that's how I read that. It's not like the subject writ large, but the genic unconscious. But uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone else has thoughts about about this. Yeah, so it helps. And this is what they clarify as they move into um, 329. The signifying chain of the unconscious, Newman, is not used to discover or decipher codes of desire but to cause absolutely decoded flows of desire, libido, to circulate and to to discover and desire that which strambles all the codes and undoes all the territorialities. So this is obviously referring more directly to the schizophrenic um, or the uh, the inclusive disjunction here. But it helps me to keep in mind too, like they they, they clarify this in the beginning, right? Newman becomes, um, excuse me, Libido, be- uh, libidinal energy becomes numinous energy, which becomes uh, voluptuous energy in the third synthesis. So there's a, a continu- there's, there's a con- there's a continuity of the flow as it's moving through these uh, syntheses. But that's in schizoanalysis. Their critique here seems to be talking about that, uh, to quote directly, psychoanalysis makes a molar use of the signifying chain that results in a misappropriation appreciation of all the syntheses so the three things you're talking about they're talking about how psychoanalysis by recording or axiomatizing flows of desire in this way actually is a misappreciation of all the syntheses yeah you get the paralogisms right yes okay so so and that's kind of what i I think they're getting at. if you go back to like i know i brought this up a lot the diagram i think like 282 or whatever the end of uh, 4.1 is Right, there's a way in which the flow of desire uh, goes through the territorial machines and, and gets deterritorialized and re-territorialized or decoded and recoded, right? And I think that's what they're talking about here is like there's a way in which psychoanalysis, um, when things bounce back from the body of that organ, psychoanalysis can continue the, um, the, uh, the paralogisms of desire here. Okay, I think I grasp. I, I, I think, yes, that makes more sense. 
All right. Uh, any last comments before we move on to the next paragraph, which is where I actually do understand. I like these next few paragraphs. It's, it's been up to this point that I have more trouble. Um, I'll continue reading. The body without organs is the model of death. As the authors of horror stories have understood so well, it is not death that serves as the model for catatonia. It is catatonic schizophrenia that gives its model to death. Zero intensity. The death model appears when the body without organs repels the organs and lays them aside. No mouth, no tongue, no teeth. From the point of self-mutilation to the point of suicide. Yet there is no real opposition between the body without organs and the organs as partial objects. The only real opposition is to the molar organism that is their common enemy. In the desiring machine, one sees the same catatonic inspired by the immobile motor that forces him to put aside his organs, to immobilize them, to silence them, but also impelled by the working parts that work in an autonomous or stereotyped fashion to reactivate the organs, to reanimate them with local movements. It is a question of different parts of the machine, different and coexisting, different in their very existence. Hence, it is absurd to speak of a death desire that would presumably be in a qualitative opposition to the life desires. Death is not desired. There is only death that desires. By virtue of the body without organs, or the immobile motor, and there is also life that desires by virtue of the working organs. There we do not have two desires, but two parts, two kinds of desiring machine parts, in the dispersion of the machine itself. And yet the problem persists. How can all that function together? For it is not yet a functioning, but solely the non-structural conditioning of a molecular functioning. The functioning appears when the motor, under the preceding conditions, i.e. without ceasing to be immobile and without forming an organism, attracts the organs to the body without organs and appropriates them for itself in the apparent objective movement. Repulsion is the condition of the machine's functioning, but attraction is the functioning itself. That the functioning depends on repulsion is clear to us inasmuch as it all works only by breaking down. One is then able to say what, is, what this is running or this functioning consists of. In the cycle of the desiring machine, it is a matter of constantly translating, constantly converting the death model into something else altogether, which is the experience of death. Converting the death that rises from within, in the body without organs, into the death that comes from without, on the body without organs. So here, it's, um, it's another way to talk about the deterritorialization and re-territorialization. In the sense that for any assemblage that needs to move, there's, there's a need of uh, destructuration. You know, you need to destroy yourself from the inside to actually restructure yourself. So it's always a move between a positive force and inertia, always and in, in, in going back and forth. So, for example, for anything to change, there's need. There's a need for um, an an inherent destruction. So that this is how what they're trying to say in this. And, you know, there's always the molar versus the molecular. The, mo the molar is the moment of structuration, and the molecular is the moment of movement. Yeah, and, and that's the twist on it, right? Because if I remember correctly, like for Freud, the death drive is sort of contra to the libidinal um, drive. But here their point is that it's, it's not 
like they're in opposition, right? Like desire, if desire works by breaking down and it's not actually some other force that's breaking down desire, right? So it's, it's complementary rather than um, uh, contrary. So, so would you say this is related to anti-production? I think so, because they're talking about the body without organs here. Is um, how do they put it? The body without Morgan, yeah, the body without Morgans, the body without organs is the model of death. But I like the the way that they talk about this. Uh, the line um, specifically, death is not desired. There is only death that desires. Uh, again, going back to the idea of this sort of core libidinal flow that is the energy that sort of powers everything, that it's not death as its own sort of desire pathway, but instead death that desires and utilizes this libidinal energy for itself, which I think is an interesting take, given sort of Freud's take is very much that there is its own drive and its own power source effectively for the death drive. If we want to put this on a schema, you know, we, we need to we need to ask ourselves, is that a beginning of like let's take an individual life, for example, is that at the beginning, at the end, or within the process? And it depending where we put death, uh, it could be at three places at the same time, but it's always this this uh, the zero force that always gives uh, on which you know the impulse need to take um, take as a base. So to produce something, you need a negative or like, you know, a zero point somewhere. And you always need to like start from there. So one of the things I have a question about is where they talk early on about uh, catatonic schizophrenia that gives its model to death, zero intensity. Um, so my understanding of the Freudian death drive is uh, uh, basically the concept of self-destructive desires, uh, aggression, hatred, uh, chaos, whereas their play for this feels more like almost the heat death of the universe, where there's no energy and no anything absent of all of that. Like the, the death model appears when the body without organs repels the organs and lays them aside. It has no mouth, no tongue, no teeth. It has no machines. The, the body without organs itself is, is nothing. It is catatonia. It is this different sort of take on death rather than uh, almost this apocalyptic energy that the death drive pushed through Freud. It's a... Uh, well, uh, it would be more the Big Bang energy in the sense that it's undifferentiated. And smooth, yeah. I suppose. It sounds different from... So for Freud, in my reading of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, um, the death drive, compulsion repetition, he sort of reads it to be the drive to master one's own death. And it has like paradoxical, I don't know, ways of showing itself. But this move seems closer to Lacan's reading of the death drive and so far as all drives or death drives that there is no legitimate difference between eros and thanatos um and but at the same time it's different from lacan uh in so far as uh it creates something 
So for Lacan, the death drive is all is almost always a problem of nostalgia, of like a looking back, not rem, not a reminiscence, but nostalgia, uh, in the sense that you know the the object of nostalgia is the object of anxiety, which is a partial object, or would be like Freud's thing. Yeah, in in my readings of Lacan, it was always a nostalgia of almost a safe, uh, a beautiful past, uh, not necessarily a good or healthy one. But this, uh, it, it is about the mother's breath breast. But there's a there's a a harmony and safety inside of it that is waiting for you, and that that's the death drive is pushing towards that. This feels like almost. Uh, it does feel a lot closer to the Lacanian sense. Freud, I've always taken it as being. Um, it's always felt like the energy behind a death drive is is destructive. Um, but this this kind of also goes. What I see here is it goes to what we were saying last time about how, in some ways, they use psychoanalysis, and in other ways, they throw it out. So, like with Lacan, I think earlier in one of these pages, they talk about how you know he he was able to see the real inorganization of desire like beneath the surface so-called, but that you're right. I think Ken, that this, you could almost read this, like it, it almost looks as though they're talking about a lack. Right. But I think the, it, it's almost works with what we were talking about last time, because it's as though Locanian psychoanalysis stops at this phase. And we know that beneath this, there's still the teeming desiring machines. Whereas what, what Locanian psychoanalysis or anyone that's based on lack will see is this, is that zero intensity or is that absence and say, well, this is the foundation on which like the subject is produced. But the, I, I'm, I like the idea. I don't know if I fully grasp the concept of zero intensity. I don't, I'm kind of understanding it like a limit, the way that they describe the body without organs itself, which I don't know if that means it's synonymous, but the, the idea of it as the, like the necessary, like the built upon absence that then draws things onto it that I'm kind of understanding. Yeah, if I can say something to that real fast. Please, uh, please. So the the reason why it's paradoxical is because um, so sort of left to its own thing. I mean, the death drive does seem to end up in you know entropy or something, um, but that's not what we see happen. What we see happen is it's. Uh, it, it pushes a person beyond the pleasure principle, Ma trying to master one's own death does, getting outside of one's own identity or body. So you end up doing something like participating in chili eating contests or something like this. Um, and, and the Lacanian lack. Uh, so it's not, I mean, it's a myth. And Lacan says it's a myth. He says the lamella is a myth. Um, so it's not. I, I I've never understood the. Uh, I've never understood the criticism that there is no lack uh, because um, you know it's, Lacan says it plainly in seminar. What is it? Ten that there is no lack. Um, it's like a production of lack, or it's like a virtual. It's like the idea of lack or something. Um, and that is what the uh, the object A is. 
which is at the same time the object of anxiety. Um, and so you were talking about how, uh, yeah, it's nostalgia to go back to the thing, Freud's thing, um, which is like the not mother. Uh, but um, but what this does is in, it ends up like destroying the person. Yeah, the not mother. Am I, uh, Ken, am I correct? The, so like uh, Thanos or the death drive, it's part of self-destructive behavior, right? For uh, Freud, it seems to look like that. But even Freud makes the point that uh, it's not like always the case. But at the same time, he does make it sound like, you know, it is this will to... Uh, reduce oneself to I don't know uh, uh, no longer being animated or whatever. Let's go back to what Bo, I think he offered us the, uh, like a little paragraph, a little citation or quote uh, that help us explain or understand like where uh, psychoanalysis and Freud stand on the question for some of us who are not well vested. So I might uh, read it real quick. On the basis of theoretical considerations underpinned by biology, we posited a dead drive charge with the task of causing animate organism to revert to an inanimate state, whereas Eros pursues the goal of maximizing the complexity of life and thereby, of course, preserving it by a never more catholic combination of the particles into which living matter has been fragmented. According to this view, the emergence of life is therefore the cause both of the urge to carry on living and simultaneously of the urge for death. While its life itself is a battle in constant compromise between those two urges, considered thus, the question as to the origin of life remain a cosmological one, while the question as to the purpose and intention of life is answered in dualistic terms. Yeah, I think this goes back to the idea that, at least as I interpret that, right, like there's a problem of the death drive and the uh, libidinal drive or Eros and Thanatos for, for Freud being opposed to one another. But I, th I think what Deleuze and Guattari are saying is, no, there's a, a continuity where they actually are two parts of the same mechanism and they actually uh, work together, whether it's through repulsion or attraction, it's, it's collaborative. Then, and I would agree with this. I think that's a really good point in the sense that we move from a dualistic understanding to a more processual one. In the process, there's no duality. Everything depends on the other and everything is intertwined into one machine. So, you know, it's like two movement of a motor, you know, like a piston. I don't know what's a piston in English, but, you know, as it, as it pushes the gas and it turns in the ignition, uh, uh, the, the pulse and the repulse are dependent on making the motor function. You cannot take the negative out of it because the motor will not function if you do it. You know, so it's like all both of those movements are constitutive of what's happening. Yeah, to me, I don't see it as uh, I don't think it's uh, absent or negative. It's like uh, when I see zero, I think of like an origin point or like a, so. Like if you, I think of like. Um, you guys remember like graphs in um, like high school where you got the four quadrants and then in the middle there's an origin point which is usually zero. That's what I think about with like uh, what they're saying here is the body without organs is where this stuff kind of 
um, arises out of either through miraculation or repulsion. Well, I'm going to push us into the next paragraph because as Ben uh, commented, it continues and it's worth uh, continuing to read. <clears throat> but it seems that things are becoming very obscure. For what is this distinction between the experience of death and the model of death? Here again, is it a death desire, a being for death, or rather an investment of death, even if speculative? None of the above. The experience of death is the most common of occurrences in the unconscious, precisely because it occurs in life and for life, in every passage or becoming, in every intensity as passage or becoming. It is in the very nature of every intensity to invest within itself the zero intensity starting from which it is produced in one moment as that which grows or diminishes according to an infinity of degrees. As Klosowski noted, an afflux is necessary merely to signify the absence of intensity. We have attempted to show in this respect how the relations of attraction and repulsion produced such states, sensations, and emotions, which imply a new energetic conversion and form the third kind of synthesis, the synthesis of conjunction. One might say that the unconscious as a real subject has scattered an apparent residual and nomadic subject around the entire compass of its cycle, a subject that passes by way of all the becomings corresponding to the included disjunctions. The last part of the desiring machine, the adjacent part. These intense becomings and feelings, these intensive emotions, <coughs> sorry, pardon me, these intense feelings, these intense becomings and feelings, these intense emotions feed deliriums and hallucinations. But in themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in itself. They control the unconscious experience of death insofar as death is what is felt in every feeling. What never ceases and never finishes happening in every becoming. In the becoming another sex, the becoming God, the becoming a race, etc., forming zones of intensity on the body without organs. Every intensity controls within its own life the experience of death and envelops it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end, that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. Death, then, does actually happen. Maurice Blanchot distinguishes this twofold nature clearly these two irreducible aspects of death, the one according to which the apparent subject never ceases to live and travel as a one, one never stops and never has done with dying, and the other according to which this same subject, fixed as I, actually dies, which is to say it finally ceases to die since it ends up dying, in the reality of a last instant that fixes it in this way as in all the while undoing the intensity, carrying it back to the zero that envelops it. Um, when, when he refers to Blanchot, just a little precision in language. When you say one in English, in French it's en, it's a non-specific uh, subject. It's, uh, it's a general, you know, it's like, it's not one as a unity. It's, it's, it's more like closer to it, but it as a subjectified thing. Oh, thing, yeah. one can be used like that in English. Uh, it's it's more of a classic English. Sw 
Oh, one must never wear such a shirt. Things like that. Okay, okay, gotcha. I just wanted to specify because, you know, it, it marks a certain type of unity, which is not there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, in, it's intended to be nonspecific. So I'm going to ask, uh, I, mean, I have so many questions. Uh, does anyone want to take a crack at this paragraph before I dive in? Because this is a lot of words, and I'm having difficulty understanding, uh, honestly, how death uh, is a thing that is enveloped in the thing and then also becomes the thing when the thing decides to stop ceasing the thing, which is just feels like complex language word games almost. Yeah, I'll try and kick it off, and can maybe you can... Um me out my psychoanalytic um reference point but so like if we step back right and we, we remember like again we're, we're developing like uh, so we're talking about the unconscious here part of their move that they're making uh throughout this book and i think they're reaffirming here right so like, we've talked about how like the id and the ego and the superego have kind of fallen away during this theory of the unconscious and in large part that's because um since we're dealing with partial objects, since we're dealing with desiring machines, this uh, this ontology, it becomes a lot harder to center everything in the person or the subject more specifically, right? So like typically in psychoanalysis, like with the death drive that we were just talking about with like the, the chili eating contest um, or whatever, right? Like that, that becomes a way of just like Ken was saying, talking about neuroticism, talking about anxiety, we're talking about the psychotic, right? Like, if you if you talk about in terms of desire, it's a problem of like how the ego is regulating the id's desires, and where the superego is, and all that. So what we're seeing here is they're moving. So they're moving out of this, but they're not moving out of it by trying to say like, no, there's not a there's not a death drive. They're not trying to gain anything. Their move here is to affirm uh, that death is part of desiring, and that there is a becoming um, of death. Yeah, and um, maybe one thing. Uh, here again, is it a dead desire or a being for that? You know, there's, this is for for me. It's something that answers to Heidegger into a f like its form of ontology, and as and they say something like the experience of death is the most common of occurrences in the unconscious, but at the same time. Somebody like Heidegger would say that you cannot experience that. You know, that's it's like a moment of non-being. So, and I think there's like a little reference, a little poke there to this 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 form of understanding of life and death, and they're placing death within life, and something that preys upon life constantly, and not something that you know is 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 at the end or elsewhere. Well, and something we do right. Something that actually preconditions the individual drives. They do talk about on the one of the next pages, I think three thirty-two, about the like the two camps, the ones that say that you can't, the ones that both say that there must be a death instinct, and the ones that say that there can't be one because there's no model or experience. But then they're saying, well, we believe there is a model and an experience of it in the unconscious. I wonder if just in my head, as I'm trying to understand this, that. Going back to that ship of Theseus thing we were talking about yesterday, Brooks, I wonder if that's kind of where the la the end of the paragraph is coming from, in that like, in that idea of that the ship of Theseus constantly having to 
you know, break apart and be reconstructed and every single board is being replaced. Like if you're thinking about any kind of, uh, or I, I don't want to say organism, that's not the word they would use, but any kind of uh, existence this does that. Chain. Um, I mean, that's how they talk about their, the chain. I mean, just in the last few paragraphs, ultimately as well. Right. Well, but, so I mean, maybe that in that sense, like the, the death in the sense of what we've always been talking about, you know, the desire machines break down in order to function to think of that breaking down as simply an external force that is opposed to the life of the thing is to kind of already get stuck in all these like later representational games or like anthropocentric ways of thinking about things. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask because, and I can, I know you're uh, more versed in Lacan than I am. My understanding of Lacanian death drive is not that it was its own separate thing, but really uh, I mean, he spent his later lectures, if memory serves, actually basically saying all drives have some level of death drive in them. Yeah, he says all drives are death drives. So is that that this feels like if we're talking about uh, Freud comes along and says, no, humans have a death drive. And Lacan comes along and goes, well, actually, it's not a specific death drive. All drives have death drives. And then Guattari and... And Deleuze come along and they go, oh, yeah, well, that's very true, but it's actually that all it's... Death all death have drives. It's not so much that everything has a death drive, it's that death is a part of every drive and pulling, and is a pulling force as well. And that's the part, that last thing is the part I'm trying to understand. What are they trying to say that's in... Because what you guys just said sounds like what Lacan said, which is that every drive has death in it. I don't think it's the same, though, because... That's why I tried to use the example, whether it's right or not, from yesterday, because in my mind, that's it goes back to the D and G thing of always. It, it's always productive. It's not, um, you know, it's not desiring destruction. It's not that unconscious thinking something and wanting to be a particular way, and so it strives towards the something. It's literally like how it's another side of how the productive process itself happens. So that that's why I feel it's a slight difference, but. But we can also see this as a any. It's like a topological kind of understanding. As um, every intensity, you know, let's put it into number. Every intensity of a hundred also encompasses the intensity of zero, because you know it's a reference point of where it stands as an intensity. So every life, as is death or zero level intensity, encompassed into it. So there's always this, and you know the example of the motor is this: to produce a hundred units of energy, it's always in reference to its zero unit of production. I don't know if that makes sense or help anything. Well, it it does, and so um, again to go back to what everyone views death as, because we're I think we're I and Ken, please help me here. Uh, Freud, when he used the term death, is not the same thing as what we're talking about now. No, it doesn't sound like it. And so Freud, you know, it seems like Freud stole all this from not stole, I shouldn't say that. But uh he uh was deeply inspired. Yeah, he was deeply inspired by Sabina Spielrein's destruction as a cause of coming into being, which is uh which seems much closer to what um, well, further away from what Lacan was talking about and then closer to uh, what Deleuze and Guattari are talking about. But I think one of the major differences is that 
the object that the death drive repeats on that it starts circling around is the, the is the thing um is the object petite ah right and that keeps one in the whole daddy mommy me phallus thing even if it's beyond even if the object petite ah and like jouissance is beyond the big other or whatever it's it's the lack in in the symbolic order it's where the symbolic order hiccups um it's still maintains that daddy mommy me thing it still maintains that what you're doing and circling around is going back to some is is the the recapitulation of the fantasy that you can go back to some primary narcissism where you're where you're in the oneness of like no longer having a differentiation between subject and object where you're a baby in the womb or something. Whereas it seems like Deleuze and Guadri uh, say that that's not what this all leads back to. This can produce something new, which was Sabina Spielerein's point. That destruction can be the cause for a becoming. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you because... Um... And then that, that's what this that's what a lot of their ontology does and makes much more difficult is the idea that you can just like you can just take um like the, the chili eating contest and look at that and say, Oh well he's just suffering from narcissism or like uh, anorexia or it's a problem of wish fulfillment, right? To be really like stere- um, you know, stereotypically uh, psychoanalytical. But conversely, like and it, it's not simply destruction, is it? Like it's anti-production, which is kind of nice here because it, it, since anti-production is produced, right, the bivalve organs is produced and inserted. There's a way in which, like, um, it's not simply like a, we can use the word destruction. That's not the. Um, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but it, it's uh, also in like um, dying here. Right? Like it's affirmative in that sense, where it's not simply like it's not like a, a problem of like what comes after life anymore or like the end of life. They're talking about like, like I think about when I play a record and like, you know, then it, it ends and the needle pulls off, right? Like anti, there's a certain anti-production there. I was just saying in the chat as well, I think we need to think kind of like Roger's always saying, like ecologically and topographically, like if you think about in ecologies and in nature and the earth and, even in our own bodies, like even even in the other examples we've used, cells and skin and all the rest of it, like fertilizer, the earth's humus, like the surfaces, like all these things, it, it, only from an anthropocentric kind of like perspective will we see death as an end or beginning of something rather than as part of the like actual like possibility of life, you know, which we, we know intrinsically in like agriculture, you know. Yeah, because that's the difference between life and a life also. And, you know, I think you're touching to something that is uh, important. And this might be a good place to go into the Blanchot reference. Okay, I'm going to ask because I'm trying to follow along and I don't know why I'm having so much trouble. Um, So here what we're talking about is their version of death, as they're talking about, is ultimately anti-production. Yeah, I think so because they're not talking about the death drive in like the the, um, the typical sense. They're talking about in terms of anti-production, like the record moving between grooves. Right? There's a way in which, um, and I'm just using that as an example, but there's a way in which like the the, the procedurality, like there's 
things happening where um, uh, the, the needle is being moved, right? And there's things ending and there's, um, it's not like, a, so like when they, the reason I like the blonde show thing is they talks about dying, right? Like dying is part of the process. You know, uh, when you play a note on a guitar, it, it does end. Or otherwise, like uh, when you apply tremolo, like that, that is an application of um, staggering the note. Okay. Um, so this is sounding different than my understanding of what anti-production was, which up till this point, I saw anti-production as, uh, a, a, as he says, the, the body without organs is basically this almost pure anti-production. That's what it exists as. The body without organs is anti-production, which means that by being that, it's basically positioned in a place almost opposing subjectivity. And no, it's, I don't the, think it's, that, it's, it's, it's the, the end of subjectivity or the complete actualization. And then subjectivity, the possibilities of subjectivity stop at the moment interproduction comes in. Right. So, and then, you know, production would be uh, putting that subjectivity back in movement, allowing becomings. So that's the topological, you know, movements of like being full and being empty and being just it, because between between when you're full, you're at the same place as when you're empty. Because, you know, it's a it's a zero sum or like a hundred percent sum. So and then the, 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 the in between allows to go up or down in intensity. So this movement, uh, the entry production will be like a hundred percent all the time. But, it, but I would say it's not that the body of the organs is anti-production because they talk about anti-production as a, as a flow itself. And the body without organs is the result of anti-production mm -hmm. and itself. Like that's why they always come back to, and I, for me at least, I always think of that term surface because it's a surface that is created as a result of these processes that it by necessity, in order to have any kind of solidity, it has to repel things. So it becomes the kind of limit point they say in the previous section, it's both the limit, it's both produced as like another part and also it becomes the limit of the kind of like uh, field of presence. Is that the phrase they use? Well, it's so the, like, the, the, first, yeah. the first section of this book, they have the sentence that says the full body without organs belongs to the realm of anti-production. Yeah, the realm, that makes sense to me. But I would just, I, I was just thinking of it. It's not, it's not that it is anti-production itself. It's that it functions according to the logic of anti-production. But then as we're reading, it also magnetizes and attracts as well. So it can't just be that. And what anti-production is a moment in it. And it's a, like a counteracting force that allows for other becomings. Because, you know, it stopped a certain type of becoming by filling it and allows for another. Okay. So, and if we look at the surface as, you know, the body without organ is a surface, production and anti-productions are two moments of it. And a body without organ can stabilize, but its stabilization gives way to uh, possible other lines of flight. And I'm going too far into the conceptual thing, but it, it, the moment, you know, for example, a city, when a city is like perfectly built, something will break. And this is this breakage from the anti-productive moment that allows another production or another form of becoming within the city. Yeah, 
I don't think you're going too far because that's actually really critical for the second and third syntheses, right? Because as we, the body without organs being part of the distribution and the, um, uh, the third part, which is consumption or like, if we want to talk about subjectivity, it, it, like you're saying, right? Like in terms of lines and fight of that, but that is very much bound up in what the, the body without organs, how it's going to be recorded upon, how it's going to distribute, how that second synthesis is operating, right? With the either or, or, or the double bind. And likewise into the third synthesis, which they're, they only briefly touch on here, but right, like in terms of like where there's going to be subjectivity, right? Like that, that is part of what, um, comes from that, uh, that, that process with the body without organs. So it's, that, it's essentially the absence of process. So we're talking about the process happens and then death is ultimately that absence of process, which allows breaks and allows new becomings to exist. Yeah, would make sense. And if we can take the, the, the example of the vinyl, you know, there's a difference between the vinyl and the tape. The vinyl is a completed uh, object you know there's no becoming to a vinyl it can break down you know there's going to be changes into the way it plays into you know if we leave it into the sun but but as a as a as a good that is being produced it has no becoming but a tape you can like you know put the little tape on the the, the top of the little uh uh hole at the top and re-record on it so there's a possibility of becoming to the tape which was not possible into the vinyl you know so there is one there is a possibility right as you play the record you're actually like slowly damaging it right so it is actually breaking down and you see this with the pops and the cracks and the static for instance my uh, my grandfather the joke about his records was they all sound like firecrackers which they absolutely did you were it was like listening to firecrackers over sinatra hmm. but it's the same principle as you're saying I was just going to say before we moved on to that, maybe something to keep in mind, at least from where I'm sitting, that I don't think of the BWO as opposed to subjectivity either. I don't know if that's the right way of going about it, because to me, I see it as the possibility for it creates the possibility for experience and not, and that can go in various directions and be reappropriated and maybe liberated, but it's not the, it in the process, it functions as an end, as a absence, like you said, a, an endpoint or an antiproductive moment, but it also is like we're saying it's the surface upon which things are recorded. So it's not like opposed to subjectivity, like molar uh, reified Oedipalized subjects. They, they don't not have a BWO or something. That's that it literally creates the possibility of that. Yeah. Subjectivity, like subjectivity is the process of consuming the intensities that are recorded on the body without organs. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I wish they got into that third synthesis more here, but that's that's really critical because it doesn't take subjectivity off the table. But it, it like you're saying, right? Like there's a way in which the body without organs is part of like the miraculing, the repulsion, but also the distribution and the consumption of the intensities. I want to say too, though. Um, I wasn't sure. Like, is the body without organs? When you say like the like the absence of a process, could you elaborate on that? Uh, me? I was just using the language that Brooks was using. I don't know if I oh, thought of it. No, it was directed to, directed to Mr. Brooks. <laughs> so, and again, this is how I'm kind of trying to parse what this means by placing it into what I think is the rest of Deleuze's work. Um, it, the concept of repetition, if especially if we're following 
Uh, and again, Ken, feel free to jump in here. We're following the Lacanian idea of the death instinct. The, the, the way Lacan has the death instinct appear is that ultimately becomes this, this world of repetition. When you repeat things, you have a compulsion to do those things due to the death instinct coming across. The death instinct happens when a thing ends and you feel the absence of it and that lack, and then you go do it again and again and again and again and again, compulsively. Uh, this feels very similar to that in the sense that uh, our ability to become is uh, becoming exists thanks to the repetition of these processes. And if we have the process happen through the three syntheses at some point, the, the flow has to, because it has death built into it, as they talk about, or the, the flat, the heat death, the, the absence of life, whatever they want to call it, uh, it feels like it's pushing towards the idea that uh, you have the process happening. At some point, the process doesn't happen. That is the death of the process. And they feel... The cycle, the, the next paragraph I was reading ahead, the next paragraph seems to push towards that. I'm going to read and then let's continue this um, to continue reading. From one aspect to the other, there is not at all a personal deepening, but something quite different. There is a return from the experience of death to the model of death in the cycle of the desiring machines. The cycle is closed for a new departure since this is another the experience of death must have given us exactly enough broadened experience in order to live and know that the desiring machines do not die, and that the subject, as an adjacent part, is always a one who conducts the experience, not a who receives the model. Not an I. Not an I who receives the model. For the model itself is not the I either, but the body without organs. And I does not rejoin the model without the model starting out again in the direction of another experience. Always going from the model to the experience and starting out again, returning from the model to the experience, is what schizophrenizing death amounts to, the exercise of the desiring machines, which is their very secret, well understood by the terrifying authors. The machines tell us this, make us live it, feel it, deeper than delirium and further than hallucination. Yes, the return to repulsion will condition other attractions, other functionings, the setting in motion of other working parts on the body without organs, the putting to work of other adjacent parts on the periphery that have as much a right to say one as we ourselves do. Let him die in his leaping through the unheard of and unnameable things. Other horrible workers will come. They will begin on the horizons where the other collapsed. The eternal return is experience and as the territorialized circuit of all the cycles of desire. Now, oh, if you're not, you know, the, I fucked up uh, some of that reading because the PDF I have did some really terrible text recognition. Uh, so, apologize. <clears throat> And, um, and in this, you know, if we want to take this in that the subject as an adjacent part, it's adjacent, it's secondary, it's something outside or something, you know, on the periphery um, is always a one uh, on, who conducts the experience, not an I who receives the model. So, for example, it's not Brooks that is receiving the model through the experience, it's Brooks that is being on the periphery of the process. So Brooke, into a Simondon sense, is metastable in the sense that it's always reconstructed and produced by the processes that happen from the body without organ through experience. So to Jack's question about 
how I see when they talk about the cycle of the desiring machines and the repetition there uh, that ultimately can yield becoming, it feels as though this is the cycle they're talking about. That, mm -hmm. So it's, and it, it's always a cycle of intensity from zero to something that uh, actualizes itself from potentiality, from the poten uh, the virtual to the actual, from potentiality to uh, the, the materialization of the energy, how the energy passes through and creates something. But it's always like a back and forth kind of thing. It's like walking, you know? Walking is always, and I don't remember the author who says this, but like walking is like always falling down. So by you propulsing yourself uh, up front with your energy and then you fall down. And then the moment you fall down and restabilize yourself, you're able to re-propulse yourself. So it's a cycle of energy always coming in and out and allows for becoming uh, transition, transposition, or whatever kind of movement we want to imagine. Yeah, part of how I'm thinking about it is like to that point about like stepping, right? With the step, there's all sorts of like um, uh, dying becomings there, right? Like there's a way in which to take a step, right? Like you leave the ground, you're moving through, uh, your foot is moving through the air and all of that. There's a way in which like all of this is part of like the, is part of the end of um, where you began in a sense, but it's also moving toward the end of the becoming, right? And then comes the next step. Without the, without the body, without organs, as far as I can tell, like you'd pretty much have like the foot and the, the other desiring machines that are forming the assemblage it seems to me like they wouldn't really be able to start or stop. They'd just be trying to basically connect and there wouldn't be a way for like a, a distribution or a functionality to effectively take place through the potentiality um, being actualized. So when it talks about the model and the experience as being kind of going from model to experience, the model is effectively the BWO. Yes. Which is found into the pre-individual. Right. And the actual experience is actually where the subjectivity is created the moment that the individual goes through the experience, which generally speaking is not going to be exactly like the model because that's not how things work out. Uh, because that's repetition. Repetition yeah. is because the, the, it's, it's something that we've probably discussed prior. I, I've missed a few sessions, but repetition is not a copy paste. Repetition is a slight variation into the reproduction. Yep. You know, it's so, so. Uh, the experience is is this variation. It's this possible differentiation. Dif, di, how do you say this in English again? Dif, differentiation. So differentiation happens from like the 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 image to the simulacrum. The simulacrum is this kind of um, shifting, and experience allows for this shifting. And experience is just not the human experience. It's the experience of the rock. On in the desert, that is being um, exposed to wind, exposed to erosion, exposed to the sun. So you know it transforms. It has an experience of. Uh, it experiences the forces that goes on it and through it. It's it's a Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche's eternal return. Yeah, and that's important because at least as I'm understanding it, right during that third synthesis, they give the example of like the ego going round and round. So right, like, obviously it's not the ego as we think about it, but that's, that's kind of how they're making the point. So like with the desiring machines and all that, the way subjectivity is happening there is it's, 
as far as I can tell, is like uh, with the assemblage, there's like a collective, um, and this comes, I think, from the distribution of the intensities. Uh, there's a way in which all of that is it's, um, during the consum uh, the consummative and con um, consumptive process is actually experiencing it more directly. And that comes with ending the process too. Well, and it should, the paragraph I just read ends with the sentence, the eternal return as experience and as deterritorialized circuit of all the cycles of desire. That I was more making the statement as I was reading that, that I was like, oh shit, this is Nietzsche. Like there's a reason he capitalizes eternal return. I'm, I feel so stupid suddenly. I guess we gotta look at footnote 29. <laughs> So one of the things that came to mind for me when we read this paragraph, can you guys hear me okay? Yes, sir. Um, was about the, the model and experience. You know, I kind of had this visual of the experiment, the experimenter who works with models and that the models, uh, you know, start taking on this kind of life of their own. So in many ways, he's... Um, kind of tracing out the kind of empirical subjectivity in the sense that the um, subject, the scientist, can step away and appreciate the models as designing machines of their own. And so now his subjectivity is, or hers subjectivity, is in, is in balance or is, is kind of curious and, and awake to um, the design machines, which are the, the models that they're working with. Um, so that helped me understand this paragraph a little bit. And then, yeah, so to tie that into the eternal return is that um, so every cadence of anti-production uh, by the subject can still be observed, or at least there is a knowing that the desiring machines will be moving on um, with, you know, with whatever it is that the, they virtually uh, inherit or the intensity that they gain through the, the uh, when the subject stops, so the design machines continue on, and uh, yeah, somehow I was able to see that as the virtual intensities are part of the eternal returns that they get um, uh, recirculated, um, either in the models or in the experiment that that uh, the models are part of. I don't know, I, I might have dissipated into some vagary there at the end, but there is a way for the subject to now find himself uh, in relation to the design machines that are also giving him back information around his subjectivity as they continue on. So there is this that, that symbiotic or that relationship between them. I'm not sure if that's a great translation of that paragraph, but that was what's coming to mind to me, for me. So 
Um, sorry, my, my, my brain's uh, trying to shift gears. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that, and maybe this is a whole other thing, uh, subjectivity is to me, at this point, my understanding, is a virtual surface that exists sort of as a layer produced by the general machines or the desiring machines of the unconscious, and the subjectivity is created around that. Anti-production helps shape subjectivity uh, in that process, and there's a lot of things that sort of create it. Again, it's a virtual surface that exists. Uh, the thing that, for me, that makes it really tough to understand, uh, so yeah, Alyosha puts it best. Uh, the body without organs is the surface. Subjectivity is the part that's put into motion by it. The, it's a virtual affect of all of these these things coming together. Am I wrong on that, Alyosha? Is there another take on that? Um, I'm still I'm still thinking of it myself, but I think going back to what Roger said about metastable is a good is a good way of just looking at it. Like what you are and the, what you experience of you. Like if you imagine it, you're a mapping a metastable system, and there's like 14 different elements. And you are this little red dot on the side, and there's still the thirteen other like elements of what that metastable system is. Like from the perspective of you, the red dot, you're saying, "I am this thing. I am the whole system." But that, but you're not. You know, that's that's kind of, that's why it's an adjacent part. Mm -hmm. And when we when we put this into a real you know methodology and analysis and put all of this in praxis, is to see, for example. Uh, I think it's Latour who actually gives that uh, that example. I'll I'll stop giving my own examples, but he's talking about the the seaman uh, who's on his boat, and you know the boat is rocking. So by being there, is is his understanding of the world, but also his body is changing in regard to the movements of the sea and the rocking back and forth of the boat. So his his legs will develop in such a way that it offers more stability. So as a subject of this process, he's always at the receiving end and he's receiving those forces, those flux, and it transforms him as matter. But also by transforming him as matter, this matter allows him to do way more stuff onto the boat and adapt to the boat. So this, this back and forth of like um, becoming, stabilizing, stabilization becomes a new identity and the new identity is deterritorialized again starts moving, enters back into the process, transform, and adapts. So the model of adaptation works like that also. Yeah, and that's really critical. Like we talked yesterday a little bit about like the active syntheses. Right, right. Part of the big move they're making here is these are passive syntheses. So it's not like in your example of the semen, it's not like the semen is producing this by his intent and he's, you know, he's got this kind of power over it all. He's being produced within it. Yes, exactly. And it's the same as, you know, the, what was really striking into my own work is uh, working with people with uh, visual impairment and how, you know, they're going around the street and they receive all this information and they start doing um, cognitive mapping. You know, it's, it's blind mapping and they understand where they are on the street according to different stimulus that they're getting. But this is all a learned process. And you know, it's not, it's not because they are receiving all this information as a computer would receive the information, but as they become into their experience. So uh, one person, one, one blind person was telling me, it was really interesting because it, 
that person would describe the environment maybe like 60 foot and 60 feet in advance where people in using wheelchair would uh, detail the environment as they would meet it so the the person with with blindness uh, would preemptively um, recreate the environment in their mind to actually um, uh, get get in um, get in contact with it and use it and you know be able to correspond correctly to the elements of the environment so that's an interesting thing because this person is not just receiving this information but it's it's always an ongoing process of becoming within an environment you know learning shifting attuning senses and and all of that and if i understand correctly too to that point like so like your point about like the activation of memory there like if i if i'm understanding these syntheses correctly like that is enabled in part with the body without organs uh excuse me through the body without organs and the, the recording process which is kind of like memory but not exactly but uh right with that there's a familiarity with the distribution so when when that person is walking and the assemblage is happening and changing and becoming right we're seeing the um the libidinal flow is happening understand correctly right there's a way in which that assemblage like uh sort of like uh, the body without organs starts to recognize this or at least to produce the recognition and that's what they say it's a recording device and you know it, it, that's what it is it's like learning to play an instrument learning to bike learning you know there's inscription there's recording there exactly and so then what happens with that recording is that 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 gets sort of like uh, at sussed right and that distribution follows from there so we talked about the functionality yesterday right so like this is where like uh, in terms of walking like the foot start to like the the reference uh, the assemblage is uh, changing in reference to that and the distribution of like the foot's taking the steps and like how the person under is uh is experiencing that um that's sort of like uh, what we're calling memory here that, that all comes together so that uh, that the functionality can be distributed in that manner mm-hmm. so i think what we need to like we i think we can start moving on to the next well one. I, I i'd love to but i have a so i'm i'm taking a lot of this in and thank you for the the metaphor actually helps a lot but one of the things they talk about early on Uh, a few paragraphs ago, is uh, the death model appears when the body without organs repels the organs and lays them aside. This seems to be a very specific call towards the uh, capital socius versus the despot versus the prehistory versus the savage, whatever you want to call it, um, where the BWO... uh, is is not uh, is laying aside the mouth, the tongue, the teeth. Uh, it would imply heavily that the last few paragraphs uh, talk about essentially that under capital, death is omnipresent and never leaves us, is part of everything we do. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm, I give the kind of example of like, when the assemblage is changing, right, that seems to me to, right, with the body without organs being produced in that moment of the, of change, that is also like uh, some uh, that is that being kind of falling away and giving way to like a becoming like Roger's saying. Okay. This is something I, I want to, I'm, I'm making notes of this. We're going to spend some time in the review talking about this for sure, because it's, 
lot. Uh, let me let me jump to the next paragraph so we can eventually get through uh, at least two or three pages. <sighs> How odd the psychoanalytic venture is. Psychoanalysis ought to be a song of life, or else be worth nothing at all. It ought, practically, to teach us to sing life, and see how the most defeated, sad song of death emanates from it. Eopopia. That's a wonderful-sounding word. I probably didn't say it right, but I like how I pronounced it. From the start, and because of his stubborn dualism of the drives, Freud never stopped trying to limit the discovery of a subjective or vital essence of desire as libido. But when the dualism passed into a death instinct against Eros, there was no longer a simple limitation. It was a liquidation of the libido. Reich did not go wrong here, and was perhaps the only one to maintain that the product of analysis should be a free and joyous person, a carrier of the life flows capable of carrying them all the way into the desert and decoding them, even if this idea necessarily took on the appearance of a crazy idea given what had become of analysis. He demonstrated that Freud, no less than Jung and Adler, had repudiated the sexual position. The fixing of the death instinct, in fact, deprived sexuality of its generative role on at least one machinic element of desire, the desiring machines. It is a matter of eliminating the libido, insofar as it implies the possibility of energetic conversions in the machine, libido numen voluptus. It is a matter of imposing the idea of an energetic duality, rendering the machinic transformations impossible, with everything obliged to pass by way of an indifferent neutral energy. That energy emanating from Oedipus and capable of being added to either of the two irreducible forms, neutralizing mortifying life. The purpose of the topological and dynamic dualities is to thrust aside the point of view of functional multiplicity that alone is economic. Zondi situates the problem clearly. Why two kinds of drives qualified as molar, functioning mysteriously, which is to say edipally, rather than n genes of drives, eight molecular genes for example, functioning machinically? I don't understand anything in this fucking paragraph at all. Did you skip something? Yeah, you, did I skip? That's not how mine goes. You, you, I think you skipped from one one page to another. Oh no, shit! Oh god, I skipped two pages, didn't I? Uh, I was like, okay, I think I'm going crazy. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, I'm glad I'm not alone. Connected man. too much. <laughs> it's, I, I hit the mouse wrong. God damn it! Sorry, everyone. Uh, I am useless. Uh, I'll I'll back Let's up a little a bit. Point that you know. Yeah, yeah, and just delete that from the recording. Yes. So I'm going to reread this, and we're going to try again. <clears throat> How odd the psychoanalytic venture is. Psychoanalysis ought to be a song of life, or else be worth nothing at all. It ought, practically, to teach us to sing life, and see how the most defeated, sad song of death emanates from it. Aeopopoeia. From the start, and because of his stubborn dualism of the drives, Freud never stopped trying to limit the discovery of a subjective or vital essence of desire as libido. But when the dualism passed into a death instinct against Eros, this was no longer a simple limitation. It was a liquidation of the libido. Reich did not go wrong here, and was perhaps the only one to maintain that the product of analysis should be a free and joyous person, a carrier of the life flows, capable of carrying them all the way into the desert and decoding them, even if this idea necessarily took on the appearance of a crazy idea, given what had become of analysis. 
he demonstrated that Freud, no less than Jung and Adler, had repudiated the sexual position. The fixing of the death instinct, in fact, deprives sexuality of its generative role on at least one essential point, which is the genesis of anxiety, since this genesis becomes the autonomous cause of sexual repression instead of its result. It follows that sexuality as desire no longer animates a social critique of civilization, but that civilization, on the contrary, finds itself sanctified as the sole agency capable of opposing the death desire. And how does it do this? By, in principle, turning death against death. By making this turned-back death, la mort retourne, into a force of desire. By putting it in the service of a pseudo-life through an entire culture of guilt feeling. Uh, I believe that time I actually read the correct page. So, yes, you did. So you all are welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for being Jesus. so efficient. Um, one thing I do want to say, because uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion around sort of Deleuze and whether or not he was uh, ultimately, I guess, happy or sad or angry at the world or maybe dark. Uh, I like this phrasing. Uh, psychoanalysis ought practically to teach us to sing life. I really like as a scene, as a, as a line. Feels affirming. But... You know, I'm not I'm not a Freudian, and uh, I'm not really fond of psychoanalysis. So, like, how is it supposed to be uh, a song of life? How is it supposed to be life affirming? Just it, because it like reinscribed the people into the familiar, and then tried to like fix them. Is that what they're trying to say? So we got to remember, right? Like schizoanalysis is trying to deadopolize psychoanalysis and bring it to its own critique. So if, if that project succeeds, right, if psychoanalysis allows the Oedipal thing to fall away, the familialism to fall away, if it if they can bring it to the auto-critique auto and be a part of like transforming it, that's when psychoanalysis can become capable of that, singing a song of life. And uh, I believe uh, Aeopopoeia, I think, means lullaby, if I'm translating it correctly from the context. I'm reading it in. It feels like a lullaby, uh, a song to calm and help people fall asleep, child fall asleep. Yeah, ritournelle in French. Okay, so they're not talking about psychoanalysis in the Freudian sense, but like what the discipline in itself should be doing, right? It, it does feel that way, exactly. yes. Okay. It's sort of like saying, right, they see what psychoanalysis could be. Well, and that's the line they have here. Reich did not go wrong and was perhaps the only one to maintain that the product of analysis should be a free and joyous person, a carrier of life flows, capable of carrying them all the way into the desert and decoding them. And then their joke is, this is an absurd idea given the direction analysis went. We should be going this way. This is It's intended to free people and make them joyous and beautiful. And like our job is to sing lullabies and make people happy and smile, uh, which I... I like as a concept, and I, I think flows very nicely. The, the only correction I'd make is that they use the lullaby example when they're talking about what psychoanalysis, what psychoanalysis shouldn't do. So they say we see the most defeated sad song of death that emanates from it. So I, I think they're using that because it's like the lullaby puts you to sleep, you know, whereas the song of life is going to be like a friggin' Nietzschean, like, you know, uh, Wagnerian, like, will to power kind of. <laughs> thing you know 
No, but that that's exactly it, is it's Nietzschean affirmation of life, right? Like where he taught in Zarathustra about dancing, right? If you have not danced today, uh, you've, you've like wasted your life or so, I shouldn't say wasted your life, but like there's that whole thing where Zarathustra talks about dancing and turning yourself up on your head, being able to laugh and laugh at yourself, right? Like you can't do that in psychoanalysis when you're, you know, you're constantly like, uh, there's this constant problem of repression. There's that constant problem of like where they say like desire sees itself and becomes stymied, right? Because of this guilt. I, I actually, uh, Alyosha, I read that sentence completely different from you, uh, where they say and see how the most defeated sad song of death emanates from it. The it's to me that's a life affirming thing that even the most sad song of death ultimately emanates from this beautiful life. That's that's I read it as like a positive that, uh, and then they shit on that because they say, look, the the dualism of the drives, this libido on the one side and death on the other, fucking your death, fucking your chaos, uh, the the dualism. Uh, uh, Freud never stopped trying to limit the discovery of a subjective or vital essence of desire as libido, but when the dualism passed into death instinct against eros, this was no longer simple limitation; it was the liquidation of the libido. They basically, it was, uh, they're, they're making fun of the idea that they're, they're these two separate drives, when in reality, we have our, our passions, our desire, the libido, as Deleuze has talked about it, this positive force of desire that everything comes from. And death is something that's a part of that, but it's actually, again, as we've talked about, part of that becoming, part of that repetition uh, in the sort of Nietzschean sense of the eternal return. Um. Roger, maybe you can clear us up with a translation, but the, I'm seeing that, I mean, what do you think they're referring to when they say it? Sad song of death emanates from it, because if, if I think you're saying it's life, I think it means psychoanalysis. And the reason I think that is because this sentence, the, these two sentences, they, they say it, it should say, teach us to sing life, but then the next two sentences pivot to talk about, well, look, this is what it does, and this is what Freud did. Yeah, what are, mean, it, that's, I, which are they referring to? It's a grammatical question. <laughs> Now that I'm rereading it, Alyosha, I think you're right. Uh, what they're saying is, look, psychoanalysts need to look at psychoanalysis, and actually it should be, practically, to teach us to sing life. It should be affirming in this thing we're causing people. And you ought to see that instead we've replaced this uh, beautiful exaltation with instead Iapopoeia, this awful, sad, terrible death song. That's what I mean, because we've been I think you're right. About, I think you're right. God damn it, you're right. We've, we've been we've been learning a positive, productive angle on the death instinct, but I think here there, I, unless I'm wrong here, Roger, like the I'm, what was the question again? Is, what was that? What was the it that you were asking for? Well, That's so what we're asking. Is what is the it? It said. Oh yeah, but which one? It says and see how the most defeated sad song of death emanates from it, Aapopia. I think that where the confusion was coming from is that. I was seeing that as they were talking about psychoanalysis, whereas before Brooks was saying that maybe that's actually about life. And so it's a positive thing. Uh, oh, no, no, no. The, the way it is, uh, because the l'aventure, la psychanalyse, it's like the, uh, the venture. The it is, is the venture. That's right, Paula. Yeah, what? Okay. It into the, that paragraph refers to the venture. What's yeah, the, the psychoanalytic psycho venture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Awkward. Yeah, so the case, they're they're using it almost in a colloquial sense here of like not the death 
that's productive, but like the sad, ugh, I hate using these words, but like the way that they talk about like catatonic autistic forms of life that psychoanalysis develops that makes these things like neutered and milk toast. They, they liquidated the libido. The fixing of the death instinct that in fact deprives sexuality of its generative role on at least one essential point, which is the genesis of anxiety, since the genesis becomes the autonomous cause of sexual repression instead of its result. It follows that sexuality as a desire no longer animates a social critique of civilization, but that civilization, on the contrary, finds itself sanctified as the sole agency capable of opposing the death desire. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm going to go with Alyosha's reading, and I'm just going to delete everything I said from this recording because I don't want any of this in the record books. I got it completely backwards. Fucking damn Anti-production. Do you think in there there's like a crit? It sounds like, uh, especially that last part you just read, like a critique of civilization and its discontents. Like, kind of specifically. Like when Freud's talking about how, like, you know, we have to give up this aggressive instinct. And so, like, then, like, civilization is always has this um, kind of, like, lack in it. Yeah. Um, so I can't really give more of an answer, but uh, the hunch that this is referring to uh, civilization and its discontent is probably right because, like, I looked up um, Aya Popeye and um, there is a Freud quote where he uses um, that word. Although I haven't really found the context of it, he talks about um, a quarrel of giants that the, um, uh, how would you say, that Kinderfrauen. Um, like women who care for the kids um, want to um, uh, sorry I can't translate that on the fly without context it's basically useless but the Ayapoyapaya thing seems to be connected to um, civilization and its discontents that's all I wanted to say I I think that's I think that's what it's trying to say. So yes, <laughs> I don't have anything to add to it. It just that's what it sounded like, because it it ends with by turn in principle turning death against death by making this turned back death into a force of desire, but ultimately through an entire culture of guilt, and that is, I mean that's again this thing that happens pre-subject with the Oedipal placement of everything. It's this pre-guilt that exists inside of you. At least that's how I. I'm reading it, I think. It is interesting, too, to think. I've been trying to wrap my head around these last, these middle sentences here. And I think you're like that, what you were saying, Brooks, about the liquidation of the libido. Like, I'm just in my head, I'm trying to walk it out of. So, by opposing, whereas initially that there's this abstract subjective essence that Freud might, might have helped to discover with the whole psychoanalytic movement, he's always stuck in these dualisms. And then he takes it even further by opposing it to like, opposing desire to this destructive element instead so essentially you're you're affording what am i saying you're you're putting desire into this you're almost like predetermining or condemning it to always be this like a uh, thing that appears later as an anomaly or as an afterthought that as a perversion so within this bit like what you quoted of um it deprives sexuality of its generative role uh which is the genesis of anxiety since the genesis becomes autonomous so like yeah, it starts to almost look as though sexual repression is something 
that's uh, happening sort of like secondarily. I'm not sure. I don't have enough of the language here, but this is, I'm just trying to piece it together in my mind, if that makes sense. So from Deleuze and Guattari's perspective, uh, there isn't this separation of two drives or this dualism that Freud is positing. So their critique here is that because of the uh, Freudian um, position here, like it's exactly what they say, right? Like you've, you've liquidated the libido from itself and then created this, uh, this duality there. Uh, from their perspective, because there isn't this segregation, uh, what's happening is like uh, sexuality or more directly uh, li the libidinal flows desiring production, right? Like uh, sexuality in the sense they're talking about it is being stymied by, um, by the death instinct instead of like... Um, affirmed because for them it's not it's not this clear separation where there's like oh yeah there's eros and then thanatos and they butt heads right because they're actually collaborative and part of the same flow and two parts of the the same machine as they say uh it's a collaborative venture it's affirmative in that way so for them like the death drive is not it's not opposed to um libido here it works with it and it's not a because they're understanding it so differently than Freud. It's not, it's not a central problem for them. And again, when we talk about Freud, when we talk about Freud, we're talking about Oedipalization. Like that's, that's the that's the thing we keep going back to. And I want to. I we're about to keep going in, but it's worth us jumping to the next paragraph because they're about the the next paragraph is literally about Thanatos, Eros, and Reich even further. And so I would just like to keep going. Uh, there is no need to tell all over how psychoanalysis culminates in a theory of culture that takes up again the age-old task of the ascetic ideal, nirvana, the cultural extract, judging life, belittling life, measuring life against death, and only retaining from life what the death of death wants very much to leave us with, a sublime resignation. As Reich says, when psychoanalysis began to speak of Eros, the whole world breathed a sigh of relief. One knew what this meant, and that everything was going to unfold within a mortified life, since Thanatos was now the partner of Eros, for worse, but also for better. Psychoanalysis becomes the training ground of a new kind of priest, the director of bad conscience. Bad conscience has made us sick, and that is what will cure us. Freud did not hide what was really at issue with the introduction of the death instinct. It is not a question of any fact whatsoever, but merely of a principle, a question of principle. The death instinct is pure silence, pure transcendence, not giveable and not given in experience. This very point is remarkable. It is because death, according to Freud, has neither a model nor an experience, that he makes of it a transcendent principle. So that the psychoanalysts who refused the death instinct did so for the same reasons as those who accepted it. Some said there was no death instinct since there was no model or experience in the unconscious. Others, that there was a death instinct precisely because there was no model or experience. We say to the contrary, that there is no death instinct because there is both the model and the experience of a death in the unconscious. Death, then, is a part of the desiring machine, a part that must itself be judged, evaluated in the functioning of a machine and the system of its energetic conversions, and not as an abstract principle. Okay, that's pretty awesome. Um, 
I was thinking about this earlier too, and I didn't speak to it or mention it. Um, and it was very uh, serendipitous for me. But I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, that the whole notion of the ascetic aspect of, of Buddhism, um, and there are traces of the um, analogy of body without organs with meditation, uh, is in fact that all of the the ontology for dealing with suffering and the cessation of suffering through mind, mindfulness practice is essentially a coping mechanism to deal with death. That all of the zeitgeist around um, uh, a way of living, and that's why I feel like there may be a matrix of... Uh, similarity with the goals of psychoanalysis but this is basically speaking to that direct ontological or theological um myth the nirvana you know they say that uh, that the buddha is um uh attributed to have experienced the deathless finally achieved the deathless in nirvana uh but yet the very practice um, and the ethos can be thought of as really um, living a life towards finally be a- being able to uh, deal with, uh, you know, the great leveler that's coming, the Maha, the Maha, the, the Maha great uh, thing that is death that is upon us. So. And and also that we're experiencing it all the time. And and it's, uh, I don't want to say it in some sort of Sylvia Plath, we're all dying all the time kind of thing, but that in our unconscious, we actually have desiring machines that are going through the model, that see the model, go through the process, experience it, have breaks that continue to move. I, I agree, Plath is awesome. I'm not saying she's not awesome. I'm saying I'm trying not to use the term in that, that Sylvia Plath way. Uh, I'm trying to, I think they have a different conception of this sort of model of death that's constantly happening for our desiring machines. And it's that moment uh, that allows the repetition, the heat death, the the moment there is no movement, the absence of desire. Those Those moments are things that we experience all the time. I really like that model. I really like that idea. It, it goes back to what they were saying about the, the motor, you know, or the movement. Um for movement to be possible, inertia must be there. It's always like back and forth of intensity. For intensity to rise, there's need to be a zero sum, you know, like a zero uh, plateau or whatever. Like it needs to be like a not a negation of of its of its possibility, but like it's a I don't know. It's like a you know the the sprinters as they start sprinting, there's like a little block, and it allows them to propulse themselves into space so that that's the same kind of thing yeah at some point we probably should go out to that blind show quote but yeah i I think that's it though is like like if you think about the breast and like the the mouth receiving the milk right like it's not like it gets all the milk all at once right there's cuts of the flow the process is working on itself to to start by ending and also to um constant endings right there 
when they're talking about becoming deaths, right? Like they're talking about that during these procedures, or like you're saying with the motor, it's but it's going to sputter. It's going to, you know, it's going to break while it's working, and that's part of how it works. Or like with a record, right? If you scratch the record, there's a way in which you're breaking it. But as you go to play it again, it's something will be produced new, won't it? <laughs> um, but just the record. You know the movement of the record under the needle it's a breakage you know it never stays at the same point it's it's like breaking from one point to the other and it's the addition or the linear uh continuity between these points that actually creates the music so there's always like this interstice of like reading not reading reading not reading yeah exactly and it doesn't it moves from groove to groove um it, it very quickly, right? Like it, just like you're saying, it's going around and around and around just within one groove before it goes to the next. So there's a lot of like there's a lot of like to use like a, an easy word, right? Like there's a lot of stopping during the movements. I'm gonna move us on to the next paragraph. <clears throat> If Freud needs death as a principle, this is by virtue of the requirements of the dualism that maintains a qualitative opposition between the drives. You will not escape the conflict. Once the dualism of the sexual drives and the ego drives has only a topological scope, the qualitative or dynamic dualism passes between Eros and Thanatos, but the same enterprise is continued and reinforced, eliminating the machinic element of desire the desiring machines. It is a matter of eliminating the libido, insofar as it implies the possibility of energetic conversions in the machine, libido numen voluptus. It is a matter of imposing the idea of an energetic duality, rendering the machinic transformations impossible, with everything obliged to pass by way of an indifferent neutral energy, that energy emanating from Oedipus and capable of being added to either of the two irreducible forms, neutralizing, mortifying life. The purpose of the topological and dynamic dualities is to thrust aside the point of view of functional multiplicity that alone is economic. Zondi situates the problem clearly. Why two kinds of drives, qualified as molar, functioning mysteriously, which is to say adipoly, rather than n genes of drives, eight molecular genes, for example, functioning machinically? You know, this makes a lot more sense when you actually read it in a proper order, this book, just letting you know, because this paragraph now makes a lot more sense to me. Um, I'm going to read the footnote on the impossibility of immediate qualitative conversions and the necessity for going by way of neutral energy. See Sigmund Freud, the ego and the id. This impossibility, this necessity is no longer understandable. It seems to us if one agrees with Jean Laplanche that the death drive has no energy of its own. Therefore, the death drive could not enter into a veritable dualism or would have to be confused with the neutral energy itself, which Freud denies. Yeah, I think that made sense, right? Because as desiring production is moving, right? The libido to Newman to voluptus, right? Like that moves um, in relation with the body without organs, but the body without organs doesn't bring um, energy into the mix. Correct. The body without if, organs if is the body without organs is inert. Uh, I think we, we the, the super the uber particle, or I think I said ice nine. But it, it touches things, and those things become inert, just done. And so they don't have their own energy. But through the three syntheses, we see the conversions in the, machi in the machine, 
that process, but if it doesn't have its own energy, what is it pulling energy from? It's pulling energy from what? Oedipus? And I think that's the final thing. They've got like this sarcastic statement from Zondi where they're like, why two? Why stop at two? Let's have thousands of different drives, uh, which is actually kind of a fair point. But but that's the thing, you know, because they're on one side, there's going to be the molar drives and or the molar model, and then uh, the molecular drives, which are always plural, always a multiplicity, but being cast into Oedipus, into one thing, a thing that doesn't move, that transcends uh, every molecular uh, drives. So basically it reduces them or like uh, just eliminates them from the equation. Yeah, exactly. It's the value of the organs is either going to attract it and sort of um, appropriate or miraculate it, or it's going to repel them. But that is the relationship, and that's part of the distribution of that energy. Well, and it makes a lot of sense to me because one of the things that they mentioned very clearly here is that the death drive doesn't really have its own. Like, if you have libido as an energy source, what is the energy source for the death drive? For Thanatos. And it's... Uh, it's its own sort of, but why do that? It, it makes it's. I, I'm understanding what they're saying. I think. I think. Uh, yeah, I'm with Ken. Uh, as Kent says, Lacan. Uh, Simply, I'm. I'm having trouble following this. I think because I never really got super deep into Freud. And with Lacan, there is only libido. So, Lacan kind of had a solve for that, at least somewhat. And Death Drive was very different from him. For him. If one looks in this direction for the ultimate reason why Freud erects a transcendent death instinct as a principle, the reason will be found in Freud's practice itself. For if the principle has nothing to do with the facts, it has a lot to do with the psychoanalyst's conception of psychoanalytic practice, the conception the psychoanalyst wishes to impose. Freud made the most profound discovery of the abstract subjective essence of desire, libido, but since he re-alienated this essence, reinvesting it in a subjective system of representation of the ego, and since he recoded this essence on the residual territoriality of Oedipus and under the despotic signifier of castration, he could no longer conceive the essence of life except in a form turned back against itself, in the form of death itself. And this neutralization, this turning back against life, is also the last way in which a depressive and exhausted libido can go on surviving and dream that it is surviving. Quote, the ascetic ideal is an artifice for the preservation of life. Even when he wounds himself, this master of destruction, of self-destructing, the very wound itself compels him to live. It is Oedipus, the marshy earth, that gives off a powerful odor of decay and death. And it is castration, the pious ascetic wound, the signifier that makes of this death a conservatory for the Oedipal life. Desire is in itself not a desire to love, but a force to love, a virtue that gives and produces, that engineers. For how could what is in life still desire life? Who would want to call that a desire? But desire must turn back against itself in the name of a horrible Ananke. Inanke of the weak and the depressed, the contagious neurotic Inanke. Desire must produce its shadow or its monkey and find a strange artificial force for vegetating in the void at the heart of its own lack. For better days to come, it must. But who talks in this way? What abjectness 
become a desire to be loved, or worse, a sniveling desire to have been loved, a desire that is reborn of its own frustration. No, daddy mommy didn't love me enough. Sick desire stretches out on the couch, an artificial swamp, a little earth, a little mother. Quote, look at you stumbling and staggering with no use in your legs, and it's nothing but your wanting to be loved which does it. A maudlin crying to be loved, which makes your knees go all ricky, end quote. Just as there are two stomachs for the ruminant, there must, be, there must also exist two abortions, two castrations for sick desire, one in the family in the familial scene with the knitting mother, another time in the asepticized clinic in the psychoanalytic scene with specialist artists who know how to handle the death instinct and bring off castration, bring off frustration. This is just them shitting on psychoanalysis. And I don't understand the last sentence myself, Alyosha. So imagine, like, you know, spending 332 pages just waiting to, like, spit that out. <laughs> what, what do we make of the two thing? I'm just trying to understand. Just as there are two stomachs for the ruminant, there must also exist two abortions. So there's a, once in the family in the familial scene and then another time in the clinic. So there's just, like, the double edipalization, I guess. But yeah, for like desire to be digested as grass is being digested by the cow, it needs to go into two different spaces, you know, and those two different spaces are necessary for the full digestion of the grass. And then, you know, desire to be corrected um, and to be castrated, you know, it needs to be castrated within the family and then being castrated into the clinic. And without those two moments, it cannot be fully castrated. Okay, so I didn't realize that that word is is about animals. It's that ruminant, ruminant. It's a cow, yes. That makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it just means cow. But the ruminant is the depressed also. To be a ruminant about your own life is to like keep in a loop into your own problems. So it, it in French, you know, it refers to that. So basically, you're being a cow because you keep eating the grass and like you know digesting like digesting it and like biting it off and biting it off. And it's like an ongoing process of like biting on do the same thing. I just want to mention that cows have four stomachs, not two. I find that really important for some reason. Wow, it, it, it is a really weird thing for them to get wrong. <laughs> Maybe these are special French cows, Lou. Um, I, I want to ask about uh, the last sentence where they use the terms uh, the last very much the last sentence. It's a long sentence, but I mean very end of it. Uh, in the psychoanalytic scene with specialist artists who know how to handle the death instinct and bring off castration, bring off frustration. Uh, generally speaking, this means to like finish off, to conclude, to there's a lot of ways this is used as a phrase, but I don't understand. It doesn't mean to literally lift off castration. No, I think they're doing it like it's like a magician, you know, they're, they're making the trick happen. They're bringing it out like they're, I don't know, again, maybe with the original Frenches, but I'm reading it like once it's in the context after this like double edipalization or whatever, it, uh, they, they can do the final stroke to make you know the the lady look like she's been I'm, cut in half. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask what it is in the French. Sorry, Roger, because like okay, I'm gonna be crude here. 
Uh, bring off is like a colloquialism, especially during mid mid nineteenth century, for jerking someone off to orgasm. Like that's what it means. It's I'm, I'm, that's what they used it for. That's the it's a phrase. It's in a lot of books. I'm not making this shit up. How do you know that? I dude, I I I like old books, and it's a weird sort of thing in old playboys. It's a phrasing that they used. It means it means orgasm to like bring off to jerk off. I, I, I like it, fuck off all sense. of you people. I, I was thinking if it was something like that. Yeah, it, it makes it, even more sense. Than it 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 feels like orgasmic release is the intended. Yeah, books. Whatever. Fuck off, you people. Clearly, clearly you actually did read the Playboys for the articles. <laughs> I did, and the women. I was like 10 when I first started, but like bring off castration, bring off frustration. I, I just am wondering, because that is a very distinctly uh, English phrase and it's in quotes. I'm wondering if in French they use something different because that feels like a translator trick if that's the case. Just go on, I'll, I'll, I'll find it. Yeah, we'll, we'll read the next uh, paragraph. Um, uh, and just to, th this paragraph ends at the bottom of the page for me. Is that accurate for everyone? I just always check with this PDF because it's wonky as shit. Okay. It reads of the great death and the little ego. Yep. Is this, is this really the right way to bring on better days? And aren't all the destructions performed by schizoanalysis worth more than this psychoanalytic conservatory? Aren't they more a part of an affirmative task? Lie down then on the soft couch, which the analyst provides, and try to think of something different. If you realize that he is not a god, but a human being like yourself, with worries, defects, ambitions, frailties, that he is not the repository of an all-encompassing wisdom, but a wanderer along the deterritorialized path, perhaps you will cease pouring it out like a sewer, however melodious it may sound to your ears, and rise up on your own two legs and sing with your own god-given voice, Newman. To confess, to whine, to complain, to commiserate always demands a toll. To sing, it doesn't cost you a penny. Not only does it cost nothing, you actually enrich others instead of infecting them. The phantasmal world is the world which has not been fully conquered over. It is the world of the past, never of the future. To move forward clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain. We are all guilty of crime, the great crime of not living life to the full. It has to be Miller. It has to be Miller. Is that Miller? That is Miller from Setsis. Uh, <sighs> one would do well to consent. I'm sorry, they actually they actually wrote something. Uh, so after they mentioned Setsis, they say one word. One would do well to consult the exercises of comic psychoanalysis and Setsis by Henry Miller. There we go. To continue, you weren't born Oedipus. You caused it to grow in yourself, and you aim to get it out through fantasy, through castration. But this, in turn, you have caused to grow in Oedipus, namely, in yourself. The horrible circle. Shit on your whole, mortifying, imaginary, and symbolic theater. What does schizoanalysis ask? Nothing more than a bit of a relation to the outside, a little real reality. And we claim the right to a radical laxity, a radical incompetence, the right to enter the analyst's office and say, it smells bad here. It reeks of the great death and the little ego. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, I like this. That's a good paragraph. That's a good paragraph. Uh, oh. No, please go. Oh, I was just going to say that has like some of like the three, like to me, I like um, 
most like legendary lines in the whole text like the you caused as a fist to grow in yourself the like shit on your theater and it smells uh nasty in this therapist's office it's, i think i remember all of those like the first time i read it it's it's some when they when they do it right like i think i've made this comment before that a lot of their writing is so incredibly dense uh, but sometimes when they do the more poet poetic side of things and the more direct it comes across incredibly well and this is to follow Anytime you can follow Miller up with something that I feel is like equally as kind of lovely, like you've done okay. <laughs> I guess you've done okay. Um, uh, before we go, to bring off in French would be to succeed. So it, to have a successful castration or a successful frustration. It's because it's réussir in the sense of realize, but it's to be succeeding into uh, bringing into the actual. Okay, so I'm glad I... But that's the promise, right? And that's the promise that turns into a lie. Isn't what they're bringing off in that paragraph, like castration, this sort of... Um, I, what, I can't exactly remember exactly what they said. Uh, yeah, castration, frustration. Right? So it's like the... I feel like there's something with the artist because they mentioned like um, the shadow or it's monkey and I had to relook at it but like um, Deleuze like writing about like Nietzsche will talk about like you know or like it's it just in there but like you know it's he's a, a, the kind of caricature of like the uh, affirmation you know the artist is like uh, they're, they're like the imitation of the one who like um, sings the song of life and, and, and therefore they like represent this like um danger this great the greatest danger because they imitate this sort of um anti-oedipus by like it through and edipalize all more i was thinking in terms of like uh, the bringing off as being like it's supposed to be salient but in the in this um in this seating like it, it it does like uh, there there wasn't Oedipus, but it produces Oedipus, right? Like it gets you to agree to it, and then like uh, a passive synthesis, right? Like if that can it gets recorded and that, you know, there's there's a danger there. It works. Uh, I'm I'm going to continue to the next paragraph uh, unless anyone has more comments. My comment would be that we are at the two-hour mark. I think. Oh, uh, we are. We are. Let me see. Yeah, let's go ahead and we'll... So how we'll handle this is we'll go ahead and take a break here. Uh, I think there's enough left that next Monday uh, at noon Pacific time, we will continue through uh, the rest of this section, and I think we'll finish it. And then Tuesday uh, next week will be our review. Uh, once again, a mega review of a very large section. Um... Thank all of you for joining us. Uh, please join us next Monday. Uh, stick around, ask questions, do whatever you want. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and end the stream and end the recording. Thank you guys all for joining us. Bye-bye.
Thank you.